Okay, well, um, this is it, guys. So let's, uh, for the last time, at least for this class, let's turn together in our Bibles back to James chapter 5, and we're going to conclude, Lord willing, our study today. Let me start the PowerPoint as you're looking there. And uh, don't forget, there's uh, some notes there on the very back row in the chair there. If you miss those on your way in, you're welcome to grab some notes if you'd like to follow along in that way. All right, there we go. Okay, so every teacher wants to know if he or she has been successful in their teaching, which means they hope that their students have learned something. And, of course, when we're studying God's Word, we're not just looking for education, we're looking for transformation, right, as we would apply what we're learning to life. So so I would just love to hear, as we, we begin our time uh, and review going into these last few verses, what has stuck out to you? What what has been encouraging or insightful, something that you've learned or been able to apply in our study of the book of James? And we do have visitors here, so um, I'm looking for resounding... <laughs> yes, Brianna. The da- okay, and why is getting your way so dangerous? That's a great summary of James 4, 1 to 3. Very good. Excellent. Yes, and, and, and she's right. We love getting our way, and that's the problem, isn't it? We, we want things too much, and that leads us to anger and conflict and envy, and, and so uh, there's repentance needed there. Very good. Some, someone else, uh, something you learned? Um, what, what stands out in your mind from our time in James? Yes, Ron? Yeah, being a doer instead of just a hero. Uh huh. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Real. We've learned this, right? Remember, James is writing to the very first Christians. This is probably the first New Testament book written. And he's not just writing to new Christians who don't have a New Testament, probably don't even have an Old Testament, and they're looking for guidance. And that's why James is so punchy. That's why he keeps. Uh, he, he loves the imperative. He loves giving commands. He loves giving, you know, do this, don't do that, right? He's very direct. And, and that's because he's trying to give a large amount of direction to a largely directionless new church in a very short amount of time. And, and you'll remember as well, uh, the reason we, we titled our study Real Faith in Difficult Times is that not only are these Christians brand new and lacking, the, you know, the, the navigational aids that we enjoy with, you know, whole Bibles and languages we can understand and internet resources and Christian books. You know, they don't have any of that, but as well, they're being persecuted. In fact, they've been driven away. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that these are Jewish Christians who have had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. They've been scattered. So they're trying to put together Christianity for the first time, uh, and yet they're also doing so under great difficulty. And so those two themes come together, and Ron's right. One of the first things he wants them to see is that real Christianity is not just a Christianity of hearing and learning, but of obeying and acting. And uh, you'll see that all throughout the letter. Okay, so maybe one or two more. What did you learn? Um, What's your takeaway? Yes, uh, Michael. That's right, yes, we've got back to chapter 2, right, that, that we know real faith as it would produce evidence or good works, and, and that's that famous line, that faith without works is dead. 
Um, that's, that's not an attack on, on justification by faith alone, right? We understand justification is by faith alone. But justification by faith alone leads to transformation and good works. And, and James is going to argue that the absence of ev- any evidence calls into question the validity of your faith. Now, there's no such thing as a, as a Christian who says, oh, I believe, and they remain the same person. And there's no... There's no uh, movement toward godliness or application of those things of, of Scripture. So, Okay, well, uh, very good. That, that makes me feel good that you learned something here, at least a few of you, so that's good. Uh, yes, Melissa. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, almost all of chapter 3 is about controlling our words, controlling our tongue, right? And that's that's actually pretty insightful. James is going to argue, remember, that if you can get your tongue under control, your whole body is going to be under control also because the heart and the mouth are connected, right? And that means your heart is is under control. But that, that yeah, in, in, in five short chapters, if he's going to take one whole chapter about and talk about our, our, our words, then that should be a large focus of our Christian life, shouldn't it? Right? That, that, I think that says something there. Okay, so let's just very quickly review. Remember, I put the outline in the form of questions as I think James is, is challenging uh, this audience to think about the nature of real faith. So let's just walk through those briefly by way of review. Uh, in the vo- those first beginning verses of chapter 1, how do you respond to challenges? Remember, he talks about trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Uh, and, and we go... Man, what, what planet are you from, right? Who, who considers it all joy? But he explains himself that trials have a, a godly and, and uh, uh, good purpose for us, and, and that's why we can learn to respond with joy in them. Uh, what we talked about a moment ago, does your faith lead to godly action? That's what Ron said. Uh, not to just be hearers of the word, but, but doers of the word. Uh, Melissa mentioned this. Are your words under control? A whole, almost a whole chapter dedicated to... Um, the, the thought of, of really being careful with our words, using them to build up and not tear down other people. Uh, he talks uh, in the, that, that very end of chapter 3 about wisdom, that a Christian is somebody who's turning away from worldly wisdom and turning toward the wisdom of God. Uh, what Brianna mentioned about uh, loving to get our way, chapter 4, uh, is dedicated to thinking about uh, those desires that wage war in our members, and that leads us to uh, conflict and anger and envy and even murder in some cases. And then from there, he talks, of course, how do we handle that, and, and talks about repentance and what it means to deal with your heart in a biblical way. Uh, getting, we talk about being a critical person. Uh, being a person who just goes around judging others, that that's not consistent with a walk with God, and so we'd want to be careful about that. Uh, does pride drive our planning? Remember he says, uh, be careful those of you who say that tomorrow we're going to go do this and do that and plan, and, and instead we ought to say what? If the Lord wills, right? So we don't want to, we want to be humble in our planning, not prideful and arrogant. Uh, we talked about envying the rich and, and, uh, really misplaced desires there. Uh, and then just last time we talked about being patient for the Lord's return and uh, remembering that. And finally, uh, very convicting. To, uh, actually, a lot of these have been convicting to me. Are you a complainer? That a Christian who complains is a horrible witness for Jesus, right? 
so that's something uh, to definitely work on as we get into those last sections of chapter 5 here. So that brings us up really to just the, the last... Oh, I'm sorry, one more. Um, do you patiently endure suffering, right? Coming back to that theme of suffering um, that uh, he started off with, with these Christians that are being persecuted. Okay. Now we get to our last two sections. And uh, so look with me at chapter 5, James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, and we stop right there and say above all, like more important than anything else he said so far or in in terms of priority or... Uh, This is a pay attention verse, right? But above all, verse 12, My brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And this kind of dovetails with what he talked about in James chapter 3 with our words and our tongue. But he's talking here specifically about a, a usage of our tongue that he didn't mention uh, as directly. He, he did allude to it, uh, but he's going to expand on it here. And that is the issue of swearing. And um, I don't know what you think about that. As a, as a young man, this was uh, an area of struggle for me. And I remember as a, as a new Christian uh, in college learning that I need to start bringing my words under control as Christ is my Savior, Christ is my Lord, and, uh, and do that. And maybe, maybe you have a similar experience as well when you came to Christ. Uh, but I think for a lot of Christians, this is, this is really still an ongoing struggle. I, I was talking to, to someone the other day who, um, who works in a vocation where, you guys understand this, there are some vocations where swearing is just part of the script almost, right? I mean, there's some vocations where you just sort of expect, maybe the old adage, swearing like a sailor, you know, maybe if you're a Navy guy, that's, uh, I don't know, you guys that have, uh, many of you guys have been sailors and you can tell me about that, but you know, that might be one or other, And but he was just telling me, he said, you know, he's a new Christian, he struggled with this in the past, and he was just talking about how um, difficult it is when you're surrounded by people that are using ungodly language all the time. Uh, to, to try to be um, uh, pure and, and holy in your words. So, so this may be an area of struggle for some of you, or maybe you're in a vocation or in a context. I know those of you in school, uh, this is an issue. If you play sports, uh, it's an issue. So, um, so let's think about this here. And I think the first thing we need to ask is, what is swearing? Uh, every now and then I get questions about this from our high school students like, you know, you know, this, this four-letter word in English is not in the Bible as something to avoid. So how do we know that we shouldn't say it today? And that, that's a good question. So what's swearing? Um, Lacey, do you want to check the T-stats the real quick and just make sure they're set okay? It's blowing really, really cold air up here. So thank you, ma'am. Um, okay, so what is swearing? Well, well, you'll notice, according to James 5.12, what sort of swearing does James have in mind here? What's that? Like an oath, right. And and that's that's the first thing to see is we we could call this first area of swearing taking of ungodly oaths. And and this is uh, exactly what James has in mind here. Now, do you remember there is a... There is... Well, well, let me ask you this. Where is James getting most of his material, do we think? Yes, ultimately the Holy Spirit, that's true. 
But who's James? He's Jesus' brother. And uh, even though we don't think he became converted until later, he would have grown up probably hearing a lot of Jesus' teaching. And you'll remember, and we've, we've done this a number of times, that at, at many points, James seems to be rehearsing or reinforcing things that Jesus taught, particularly in his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, you've seen some of those parallels. Maybe that sounds familiar. And if you hold your place here, what James says in chapter 5, verse 12, is really the same thing that Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 and through 37. So let's just peek at that real quick. Uh, if you haven't seen that recently, noticing again the parallel between the ministry of Jesus and what James is telling his readers. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 uh, and this is in that section where, where Jesus is looking at some of the Old Testament laws that were given, some of the moral laws that were given, and he's, he, in most cases, he's not changing those laws so much as he's saying, this was the real intent of what the law of Moses was designed to produce, whereas the Pharisees and some of the other religious teachers had either added to it or had misinterpreted it in some way. So chapter 5, verse 34 of Matthew, Matthew 5, 34, we see, uh, we'll start in 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Verse 34, Jesus is going to explain that. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And, and that was a little bit of a paradigm shift to Jews who were used to giving oaths and, and thinking that I could swear by the temple or I could sw- swear by uh, you know some some religious furniture or something like that, and ultimately you know swearing by God, man, I mean that's that, that's the ultimate standard, and, and Jesus is just saying, no, that's not the intent at all. The, the intent is, be an honest person. If you make a promise, keep it. And don't feel like you have to call on something uh, like the name of God or the temple of God or something like that to verify your commitment to honesty. Uh, and, and that's exactly what James is saying here, that when, when we get into that pattern, we, we end up uh, getting into evil. So just let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Um, and, you know, I, we hear Christians every now and then saying this, too. And they, they, you know, they say, I, I swear to God. Or I, and it's like, you know, that, that's, not, that, that's not a godly thing to do. Just need to be honest people that keep our word. But I want to expand this out just a little bit because swearing, even though in, in James' mind that's what he has in mind, but swearing in, in the broader sense uh, can refer to other things as well. So we're just, just wave our hands at this briefly. We don't spend too much time on this. But, but just as a reminder, another mode of swearing in our culture would be what's calling taking God's name in vain. And you remember that, right? One of the commandments back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And again, you know, we, we I don't know, when I was growing up and I was learning the commandments in, in, um, from my parents and my church, uh, I thought that meant that if I'm helping dad build something in the garage and I hit my thumb accidentally with a hammer, that I, I shouldn't use God's name as a part of my expressing my pain and frustration of that moment, right? 
And that's true. And we ought not to do that. And when we use God's name in that way, that is taking his name in vain. But if you go back and look at Exodus and Deuteronomy and study those passages and then look at what even Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, really the intent there is not that we're just not turning the names of God or Jesus into swear words, but we're using God's word careless or his name carelessly or recklessly or casually when we use the name of god we ought to use it with reverence and respect and with awe and and with admiration and you know we we shouldn't talk about the name of god like it's just some ordinary thing in life because he's not so it's it's over using God's name in a swearing context, but it's just using God's name uh, recklessly, carelessly, shallowly. Um, those are ways we need to uh, be careful of there. And then a third way that we swear would be cursing others. Uh, James has already talked about this. If you just look back in chapter 3, verse 10, when he's talking about the tongue there, he said, uh, from the same mouth can come both blessings and cursings. Right? He says, with the same tongue, with the same mouth, we bless our Lord and Father, and we also curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. What does he say? He says, brothers, these things ought not to be this way. So we, we, we violate a, a standard of no swearing when we curse others, when we, uh, when we call judgment on others, when we call people names, when we beat people down, when we use derogatory language. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, Romans 3.14 there in your notes. Uh, that's where Paul is describing the sinfulness of humanity. And, and he talks about cursings being on the tongue of fallen sinful humanity. So that would be a way that we need to be uh, to need to avoid. And then finally, and this, this is what I think a, a lot of the teenagers have asked me over the years, just the idea of using profane or ungodly language. Um, and, and, and this is a good question. If someone says to you, uh, okay, you know, we have, we have four letter words in our culture, right? I'm not gonna say them right now, but you know what I'm talking about. We have, we have words that in our culture, in, in English, in 21st century America, that people consider to be swear language or, you know, bad language, dirty language. And, and a legitimate question. So, how do we know if those are somewhat culturally significant that, uh, that those are words that we should avoid? That's a good question, isn't it? And I was, I was, um, uh, involved uh, talking to a very young missionary one time. He was ministering in a different country. And um, uh, in the course of our conversation, he was telling me about... Um, uh, actually, it was, it was a, someone I was supervising, actually, for counseling, now that I remember. And, uh, and he used a word uh, with me talking about his counseling. And I went, I don't think that's a word you need to be using. It was one of these, you know, words that are inappropriate. And I remember, well, he said, well, in the culture that I minister to, you know, that, that's, everybody talks like that. And I said, okay, fair enough. But let's ask a couple of questions, okay? If we look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. Do you remember that? And your Bible may say rude or something like that as well. What does that word mean? It means if we're loving God and loving others, we're not using language that is inappropriate. It's questionable. Uh, yes, it can be overtly rude, but, but it's, 
by unbecoming, what, what Paul is saying there is it's, it's inconsistent with someone who's trying to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called. It's just out of line. It's out of place. And, and even more poignantly, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to, listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, There must be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are, listen to this, not fitting, meaning for Christians, not fitting for Christians, but rather instead the giving of thanks. So, so what, we're, what we're seeing here is that a Christian should never want to get close, let alone to participate in language that our culture deems to be inappropriate, ungodly, profane, rude, um, swear, because we're misrepresenting our Savior and we're not walking in a manner worthy of our, of our calling. So I, I, we could spend a lot more time on that, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of background on that. So, so swearing, taking of ungodly oaths, that's what James really has in mind, although he talks about cursing others in chapter 3 as well, when we use God's name in vain or when we use profane and ungodly language. Those are all forms of what we might think of today as, as swearing uh, in that capacity. So, Okay, does that make sense? You good on that? <clears throat> okay, so we've got to move on here, but... Um, so we need to be careful, again, with our, our words and language there. Uh, and then the last section here, I'm just kind of lumping this all together here. Uh, how do you respond to life? Uh, I, I've used the, the joke before that you get the, it, as we look at James, especially as he gets to the end of his brief letter, he's kind of like a parent that's sending his college student off to college for the first time. You know, you can see the cars packed and they're standing there in the driveway and mom's crying and, and, uh, and dad's saying, oh, and another thing and one more thing and don't forget this and don't forget. And that's what James is doing here. He, he's bringing his letter to a close and, and he's, he's like, and one more thing and one more thing. He's just boom, 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 boom as he brings his uh, letter to an end. So let's just look at how he, uh, how he lands the plane here. Chapter 5, uh, verse 13. And uh, we'll just we're gonna we're gonna kind of outline these in, in just thinking about how do we respond to life. So the first area of life that he's going to remind his readers how do you respond is suffering. Now, what do you notice about talking about suffering at the very end of his book in regard to how he started his book? Do you, do you think of anything when I say that? Where did the book of James start? in terms of content, subject matter. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It starts with suffering, and now he's going to come back to that theme at the end. That, that's something that in literature we call inclusio, right? I, I think of it as bookends. You've got a theme on the front, and you've got a theme on the back, and it sort of delimits the book, if that makes sense. James is coming back to this subject because he knows that his readers are still involved in, in persecution and being, suffer, and, and being uh, suffering under that. So, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Now, look at this. Um, let's read the section. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And you say, what on earth does that mean? We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it, some of you have been praying that it would stop raining, uh, this week at least, uh, it, he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Do you remember that story back in 1 Kings chapter 17? Remember that? Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, now looking at that whole paragraph now, not just individual parts, looking at the whole paragraph, what is James saying overall? What's his main theme that you think he's trying to get across? Yeah, Todd? Yeah, pray and rely on God. Do you see that? He says in about three different ways, pray, pray, pray. So how does a Christian respond to life? How do you respond to life? How ought we to respond to life? Remember back in chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, too bad. No, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him do what? Ask from God, and he gives generously. And here we come back to that same theme. Are you suffering? Are you struggling? Pray, ask God. Ask for him to work. And, uh, and this, this is a, a great place to conclude uh, that, that Christians, first and foremost, are those who pray, who lean on God in all things. And as we're going to see in verse 16, they pray for one another. They confess their sins to one another. That, that we ought to be not just a, uh, individuals who pray, but a community who prays. Um, and you know this. Any of you that have studied church history, you know, th- this, this first example of persecution, it might be Nero, it, it might be uh, the, the Middle Ages, it might be Reformation, it might be the Anabaptists. I mean, you, you, what, whatever generation of persecution, it, it may be what's going on in closed countries like China and North Korea today. The, the churches in the midst of persecution, have always survived, but have also thrived because why? Because they're praying churches. And that's, that's what James is reiterating here. If you're suffering, go back to God, pray, lean on Him, pray for one another, as we're gonna see. Well, you say, well, maybe I'm not suffering, maybe I'm cheerful, maybe life is great. Um, that means I don't need to pray, right? You only pray when bad things happen. Is that what it says? What do you do? Life's good? You give thanks. And, and, and thanks or singing praises is also a form of prayer, isn't it? And that's what, that's what the book of Psalms is all about. And we're, we're praising, we're thanking God. We're, so, so you ready for this? It almost sounds like the Bible is saying pray without ceasing. It almost sounds like that, doesn't it? And I'm suffering, I'm praying for God's work to to help me, to endure. I'm praying for grace, I'm praying for wisdom. Is life good? You know, I'm not suffering, I'm enjoying a season of of provision and blessing, and I'm healthy, and you know, the, the kids are doing okay, and there's enough money in the bank. Great! Then pray thanking God and praising Him for His provision and grace. What is he saying? He's saying the true Christian life is a praying life, isn't it? Now, let's look at that section that, that's hard to understand here. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, 
They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. How many of you say this is a confusing verse? You confused by this verse? I'm a little bit confused by this verse. So, so if you've got clarity, come talk to me. So, um, no, this is a difficult verse. The, again, I mentioned when I became a Christian in college and just that, that new, when faith became uh, real for me and I was walking in the Lord, I think really for the first time and um, being discipled and being a part of a little church uh, in northern Arizona. And, and I saw this for the first time where we would have occasionally people that were um, bedridden or, or particularly sick with, with cancers, you know, serious illnesses. And, and occasionally, um, as the pastor was sort of mentoring me and another college student, and so he would kind of bring us in on things going on in ministry, and, and occasionally uh, uh, people would call and the elders would go, and, and they would take a little bit of you know, olive oil or something like that, and they would, they would pray and they would put it on the person's head and they would pray for God to, to heal and restore. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. And then James, James 5. And, and then when I start studying this, you realize that, that this passage is not quite as straightforward as it might seem. So let me give you, I don't want to confuse you. Let me just show you what the issues are. And I want to give you two options for how to understand this. There's actually more than that. But let me just give you two main options. Because I think this is a place where uh, different commentators, different pastors and theologians disagree on what exactly James means here. Okay, so let me just... Uh, get in the weeds here a little bit. Some of the questions you have to answer are this. What does sick mean? You say, well, that's pretty obvious, Pastor Keith, right? Sick means sick. Uh, the, the Greek word can have a, a range of meaning. So it can mean physical illness. It can be spiritual weakness or even somebody who's just weakened physically by their suffering. And uh, that's hard. that's hard to pick, isn't it? Because Understanding the context of James, right? James is writing to people that are being persecuted. Okay, well, that fits. Uh, they certainly could be beat down by the difficulties in life. Well, that fits. They could be physically sick as well. That would fit as well. So it's hard to know which one of those does he mean. So that's one question. Another question we have to answer is, what's the significance of the anointing oil? And uh, you may know, uh, just reading your Bible, that oil was used in many different ways, right? You guys are familiar with this. Um, one of the ways is they, they would use oil as a medicine, especially for like a bruise or you know some some skin issue. They would use oil as a, an early form of medicine. Uh, they also used oil. Well, let me ask you. You guys are Bible scholars. Well, what are what other places in the Bible do you see the use of oil being used? Yeah, Todd. Anointing. Yeah, anointing. Okay, and and what was the, what was the significance of anointing with oil in in the ancient culture? Do you remember? Okay. Yes. Okay. So, uh, and I mean, you've heard what Todd said in the back there. He said, like, when they would anoint the king, symbolizing that he was becoming king, right? So they would anoint people with oil to distinguish or set special persons apart for a particular task, like a king. They would do the same with the priests as well. You remember the back in, in uh, Numbers and Leviticus when we were learning about uh, the, the sacrificial system and, and the law and the tabernacle and uh, God instructed Moses on how to anoint the priests for their service, right? Uh, you think of Psalm 23, right? Um, you anoint my head with... Okay, well, what's that all about? That's a third usage. What, what is that talking about there in Psalm 23? Do you remember? 
So if you anointed someone's head with oil, like let's say I have you over for some barbecue today. Let's say I fire up the smoker this afternoon, we throw some ribs on, we have you guys over for barbecue, right? No, that's kind of an American Southern thing. But we'll mix it with Jewish culture. So let's say you walk through my door and I've got a thing of olive oil. And as soon as you come in, the, let's say it's Callum, right? So Callum's a good friend. Callum comes in and as soon as he comes, I have to get a ladder because he's, he's a little taller than I am. But he comes in and I dump oil over his head and it's coming down, you know, and, and he's like, Keith, what are you doing? But in Jewish culture, that's what you would do when a special guest would come over. It, it set apart a, a special guest. It, it distinguished, it, it, excuse me, distinguished someone of honor, and it was a way of of, of um, communicating refreshment. Like like in our culture, Callum might walk in the door, and might say, "Hey, Callum, how's it going? Can I get you uh, Can I get you a bottle of water? Can I get you a Dr Pepper or some chickeny sweet tea or you know an, a, an offer of refreshment?" Right? Well, you would dump oil on a person's head as a means of refreshing them or or uh, encouraging them in that way. So you see on your notes there, there's a medicinal use, a pastoral use, a sacramental use, a ceremonial use. It's like, well, which one are we talking about here? And again, several of those could fit, right? So we could see how several of those might fit in what James is saying. And then the third question we kind of have to ask is, what does restore mean? And again, the, the language used here is broad enough. It can be physically healed or it can be spiritually encouraged. And so... Uh, you guys know this, sometimes lexical studies, sometimes just studying the words of the Bible don't you know, make it a solid case on meaning. Sometimes you study the words of the Bible and you go, you know, it could mean this or it could mean that. Okay. Well, I'm not here to try to solve this for you. I, I, I'll tell you what, what I lean toward, but I want to give you a couple of options here. Okay. Um, oh, and then the last question, I'm sorry, how does confession of sin and forgiveness fit in? That, that gets tricky because it's like, okay, if we're talking about physical healing and confession of sin, like how does that go together? And so, so here, here's two options, but I want to give you a, a takeaway, right? Whatever you decide, I want to give you a takeaway. Option number one, James is describing those believers who are spiritually weakened because of their physical affliction. I think this fits well with the persecution that we know these early Christians were facing. Okay? The oil mentioned, uh, is probably being used as a medicine or a healing agent from that. I think also it, it could it could have um, a different idea of you know anointing in the oil meaning um, you know this is this is a way to refresh somebody or encourage somebody like like Callum comes over and I I do that as a token of of refreshment to him. I think it could also fit with that. And so the restoration that if, if this is the right understanding, then the restoration is a spiritual. Uh, sort of inner man uh, restoration there. The mention of confession of sin highlights the fact that believers must deal with their own sins even when they are discouraged and suffering from physical affliction. You know this, right? If you're struggling uh, 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 physically and spiritually, um, do you have battles in your heart that you need to fight for indwelling sin? Do you struggle with that when you're ill or sick or when you've gone through a difficult time? I find that, that that's a time of great temptation for me. So that's why he mentions confession of sin because he wants to highlight that believers need to be dealing with their own hearts in the midst of that. So that's kind of one option. Another option is that James is describing those believers who are actually physically sick. The oil may be medicine or it may be a symbol 
of a function to identify the individual as somebody significantly in need of God's healing. That, that's that setting apart usage of like with the king or the priest. We're setting them apart saying this is a person who needs God's particular healing and intervention. The promise that God will raise him up refers to physical healing, but the language is indefinite, meaning God may choose to heal them you know, immediately or, or in the near future, or he may choose uh, ultimately to restore them at his return. Um, so, so there's some... There's some leniency there. This is not a promise that if the elders do this, they're definitely going to be healed. And we, we know that's not the case. So I think that's because the, the promise here is, is indefinite in terms of when it happens. And the mention of confession and forgiveness of sin identifies the possibility that some physical illnesses originate from unconfessed sin. This is true. David said in the Psalms, when I kept silent about my sin, what happened? My body... Have you read the Psalms? Come on, let's try that again. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, right? You remember that? Uh, remember when Jeremiah was struggling and he was beginning to think uh, ungodly thoughts about God and what God was doing as the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and, 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 um, and he talks about feeling physically afflicted and not having any energy and zapped of vitality and, right? And we see that in the Psalms as well. So what's the point? When I'm struggling with sin in my heart and I'm not dealing with it in a biblical way, it's possible that I have physiological symptoms that, uh, that are associated with that. Now, just a footnote on that. We, we do not want to, we do not want to commit the error of, uh, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, Job's three friends, right, in the book of Job, who assumed that Job's sickness could only be explained by unconfessed sin. That was their problem. They only had one category. You're suffering, that means you must be sinning in some way. So we're not going to go there. But what we do need to say, not all suffering, not all physical ailments is a result of sin, but some of it might be. And so we want to always uh, examine our heart and, and, and ask God to, to show us if there be any evil way within us, okay, and, and confess that. Does that make sense? I know it's confusing and there's a lot, it's, it's not straightforward. And I think those two options are, it's probably one or the other. Again, there's some other views. And uh, uh, go study it on your own and see what you think. But, but that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. I lean more toward option one just because I think it fits the context of the persecution and the suffering that James has been talking about throughout the book. But I'm not going to beat the pulpit too hard on that. Now, what we should beat the pulpit on is the ultimate theme of what James is saying. And what he's saying is prayer ought to be emphasized, right? Are you physically sick? Are you spiritually weary? Are you struggling? Pray, 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 pray. Is life good? Pray, thank God, praise him and uh, bless his name and, and, and spread that praise and thanks to others as a testament of the greatness of your God. Okay, that's the takeaway. Okay, so if you're suffering, pray. Are you cheerful? Sing praises. Are you sick? Call the elders. And then fourthly, this gets into verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Um, one of the things, if, if you're new to our church, I don't know what you thought when this first hits you, but one of the blessings, I think, of Grace Bible Church, and I, I say this with great joy and admiration because the elders and I just, 
feel like we're the recipients of such a wonderful church family. Um, there's a transparency in our church. There's an openness in our church that I think is pretty rare. Uh, we try to be real. We, we, we try to not come in the door wearing our Christian masks, you know, and kind of everything's good in my life and everything's good. We, we try to be real. We try to be transparent. Now, that freaks some people out, frankly, you know, because they're used to a church where you kind of put on the mask and you just kind of hide and you go through the program. But I don't I don't think that's the body of Christ. I think the body of Christ is the one another's. It's it's being real. It's loving. It's and, and here, guys, th- this is something that needs to set us apart. And I think we do this, and I think we can also excel still more, and that is we ought to be confessing our sins to one another. This should not be a place where we feel like we have to hide our sin from one another because it's some sort of you know holy club or something like that. No, it's just the opposite. This ought to be the place where we can talk about our sins and we can encourage each other and we can't you know, rather than you know oh you're struggling with that what a horrible person to say oh brother I'd love to pray for you and how can I help you and encourage you that that that's the one anothering ministry of the body of Christ and confessing sin to one another needs to be a hallmark of healthy body life here in our church. And again, I think, I think we're, we're doing a good job, but, but let's, let's again excel still more and keep at it because this is, as James is saying here, one of the hallmarks of true Christianity, that we would have that transparency uh, and honesty with one another. And, and by the way, there, there's, a, there's a flip side of that too. If someone comes to you confessing their sin... Think about a Christ-like way to respond to them. You know, oh my, I can't believe it. That, that's not the way to do it, right? I mean, it's, it's listening well, it's sympathy, it's compassion, it's care. Um, now, if, if they're, if they're like, hey, I'm struggling with this and I don't care, or I'm struggling with this and, I'm not taking, you know, th- then there's a Matthew 18 where we need to call them to repentance, right? That there's that role as well. But but we need to think about how are we going to respond when people confess their sin. And, and you know a good way to do that? Think about how you would like someone to respond when you confess their sin. Right? Um, you know, you uh, someone who listens, someone who's humble, someone who says, yeah, yeah, I'm a fellow struggler too, but you know what? I've got a great Savior and so do you. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So... Uh, and then finally, look at this. This is where he concludes. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think what James is saying here as he, he concludes, there's no salutation, there's no you know, formal benediction. That's where he ends. He ends his letter with this plea. Do you care about people that are straying away from the faith? And this goes right back to confessing your sins. This goes right back to praying. This goes right back to being the body of Christ. Do we care about one another enough that when we see a brother or sister straying off the path, that we would go after them? You know, in the in the, in the picture of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one, right? That, that, that heart of saying, I care about you and I'm going to go do that. And, and when we do that, look at this. If someone strays and one of you turns him back, what may be the, the result of that? Look at this. That he who does that 
potentially saves this person's soul from death. And by context, he's talking about spiritual death there. You say, why is that? You know, am I taking the place of Jesus if I go? No, no, no. He's not, he's not saying you become their savior. What he's saying is, like Matthew 18, when you go after your brother, right? And then you take another one or two along, and then you might have to tell it to the whole church. And then, then you might have to, you know, make a declaration that this person is not a Christian, that all of that is with the goal of bringing that person back into a place where they're trusting God and dealing with their sin. And by doing that, you might recognize that that was somebody who was um, in the congregation but was not really a Christian. That They were just sort of going through the program. They stray away. If you let them go and they're not a Christian, what happens? Right? But if you care enough, if you and I care enough and love enough to go after them, and, and, and encourage them and call them to repentance and trust in Christ, and they repent and trust Him, guess what? You, you've just been the human agent that's facilitated saving His soul from spiritual death. So that's an important role, guys, and, and that's the extent to which God would call us to love people. And He says, and cover a multitude of sins. Think of, think of what that person avoids by your love and your care and your pursuit of them. So he, he ends on this wonderful note of just loving for loving people and be willing to go after them. That's why we practice church discipline in our church. You may be new to our church and, and you've never seen you know, church discipline. That sounds horrible. We, we call it corrective discipleship in our church because it really is a means of going after somebody with their spiritual health in mind, their spiritual benefit in mind. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't start at the elder level, the church level. It starts at the individual level. If you know somebody and they're straying, you know, they've been a part of our flock and they've gone off, or maybe you know that they're struggling with sin and, and they're losing that battle, then this would say love them enough to go after them and encourage them and call them back to faith. Walk with them, pray with them, as we've seen here and know that uh, it just may be that, that you're the instrument that God might use to bring them back. Okay? Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, it's been a great study and uh, how we have grown to see what it means to truly walk with you and to be the body of Christ. Even though this was the, the very first generation of Christians, we are so thankful for the encouragement and admonition and instruction and exhortation that James has given us and we just ask for grace now that we would be the body of Christ, that we would be prayer, people who pray, people who go after those that stray, and that we would, uh, would truly love one another and, and exemplify what Christ would be as we are really truly representative of his body here. Lord, thank you for this dear family. Make us a light to the dark world around us. Make us effective to the lost in our community. And, uh, Lord, keep us faithful as, as suffering may be on the horizon um, to walk with you and to trust you. Uh, thanks, Lord, because you're at our right hand. We will not be shaken. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.